My name is Anya Highland and I'm Chair of the Social Sciences Committee and on behalf of the Royal Irish Academy I would like to welcome all of you to this panel discussion on social media and democracy. How do we balance rights and responsibilities? I'd like to thank our panel facilitator, Helen Shaw, who is the CEO of Athena Media, and she's also a member of the Social Sciences Committee, whose idea this panel discussion was. And she organized, identified, and brought together this great panel of speakers, whom she will introduce to you now shortly. And I'd also like to thank Pauline McNamara because Pauline and her team, her tiny team, I think it's mostly just Pauline, for looking after all the practical arrangements. And I'd like to invite Helen now to come and oh, you, you start from there. Thank you very <laughs> We're much. We're not moving. Thank you so much, Anya. And thank you to Pauline for kicking us off and organizing us tonight. Thanks so much for giving us your time on May Day. And in some ways, we started talking about doing this event, I think a year and a half ago, and I thought it was topical then, social media and democracy, balancing rights and responsibilities. But in many ways, every day you pick up a newspaper, if you still are picking up a physical newspaper, turn on a radio, or you go to your computer or phone and you see your news, every single day in the last weeks, it's been dominated by the substance of what we're going to talk about tonight which is, we've all shifted online. I mean, the Irish Times had a behaviours and attitudes survey out the other day, and they said, which is a nice way of putting it, is that Ireland is a wired society, deeply connected to digital technology, but also in a state of high anxiety about its own way of life. Because what the survey was telling us, and we kind of know it because we are living that, is that where 90% of us are using smartphones we're all in some way on social media, whether we're using it for communications or we're using it to book uh, facilities, whether it's Airbnb or our taxi. So we're part of this connected wired society, but increasingly over the last couple of years, we've all become very aware of the fault lines and how in many ways we're in a society where content in newspapers or in broadcasting, the environments that I came from, I mean, I started as a newspaper reporter and moved into broadcasting, they're highly regulated. We're used to the idea of how the existing society and, in a sense, the principles of rights and responsibilities that they're embedded in, the right to know, the right to information, but also the responsibilities of a publisher. And we've adopted and changed with the online shift We've also seen over two-thirds minimum of the advertising revenue of the media landscape shift online and in many ways take the rug from underneath those places which were our traditional storytellers of news and entertainment. So this last 10 years when you've seen social media become particularly mainstream to the point that we now have vast global audiences, we've also seen the emergence of companies and in many ways Ireland is lucky that those companies are often headquartered in terms of the European, Middle Eastern and African headquarters are here in Dublin for Facebook, for Twitter, for LinkedIn, for Airbnb and also then we have Google, probably the most significant company that's affecting all of our lives every day and also Apple in Cork. So we're a tiny country in the midst of this story. Our attitudes have changed our behaviours 
but also we're increasingly aware we're part of a global story around regulation. How do we balance the rights and responsibilities of things like privacy, protect our data? And some of the things that we've been looking at, I mean, if you take today alone, your headlines were showing you that government to fast track what's been called revenge porn, harmful content online. We also have paralleled with that the outcoming of Facebook's announcement yesterday where Mark Zuckerberg, who was dealing with the potential of a three to five billion dollar fine last week from the US FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, for their breaches of data, he was announcing yesterday in that great quote which went everywhere, which the future is private, that Facebook in a sense reacted and did a kickback yesterday about how they're changing from a public posting to much more of a private encrypted zone. And within that, it's always worth, from our perspective, if you think of the players that we're dealing with every day, Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, all the one company. So the level of horizontal and vertical integration in our economy and media consumption is quite significant now. And then we're in an environment where, from online harmful content, this word that we're using, where the government, Irish government has just finished a consultancy around that territory and also is looking at the introduction of an online safety commissioner. That's been flagged for the last three years or so. We're in a discussion where for 12 months ago, what many of us have grappled with in our daily lives, GDPR, our data requirements has been implemented. And then we're also in an environment that Ireland, because we're home, too many of those companies were now responsible for the data protection and the implementation of GDPR for all those billions of users. So there's so many aspects within the air on this. And when we talked about this around social media and democracy, we're looking at several aspects. Content. Is it harmful? What is harmful content and how do we regulate it? How does that relate to what we're seeing, whether it's within crime, porn, or in a sense, some of the ways in which content has been used also to promote violence or subversive activity. Many of those things are topical. We also then have this debate which has come around privacy and data, which rolled out of what really is, again, barely a one-year discussion from Cambridge Analytica. And the story that The Guardian broke, Carol Cadwallader and the team broke with The Guardian March last year about the fact that a British political consultancy firm harvested over 50 million Facebook profiles and really used them in election manipulation in not just the US and in the UK, but actually Cambridge Analytica was working right across the world, India, Kenya, Chile and beyond. So that idea of electoral protection is equally right in the centre of this data protection but also how it's affecting our elections. And then we've seen in the last year, in many cases that we all know about it, how the courts have been affected by the ways in which we, as the public, now talk online about court cases that are happening in real time. And we've seen that it has a detrimental impact on the outcomings in cases in this territory, in the UK, and in other parts of the world. So this discussion about this wonderful phenomenon that is digital media and social media and how we've all benefited from that and we start from the basis that we're all part of this 
digital evolution of society and communications and how it's enriched our world, but we're now, in a sense, having to grapple with some of the consequences of the mainstream within it. So to talk about some of those aspects, we've brought together four great people to share, to share their ideas, their work, their research, and their experience. Because within this, we also have on the floor today, with you in the audience, I know from looking at the list, lots of people who also have experience and expertise to share with us today. So we're going to unpack this within the panel and the discussion, but I'm also going to leave room towards the last 20 minutes to bring in the floor because I really do see so many names and faces of people who have really vital aspects to bring to their story. But let me introduce who's with me now. And in some ways, right beside me is Professor Brian O'Neill, who I've had the fortune of working with several times in the past because while you know, I'm probably an unreformed uh, journalist at heart. I have a small footprint in academia, which is how I've kind of ended up on the Social Science Committee with Anya. But Professor Brian O'Neill is now Director of Research and Innovation at TU Dublin. Used to be DIT, but we're now getting used to calling it Technology University Dublin. And Brian's been really at the heart of that integration at TU Dublin of the different campuses. But he's somebody who has a wealth of experience around this territory of digital media and social media, and particularly around how we look at its impact in society and how we might create regulatory models around it or good codes of practice. And Brian particularly was involved for many years around the, the topic and area of child safety online. But increasingly, much more so in recent years, across the broader spectrum of social media and digital media online, and I think one of the things that would be really good to start with would be to talk a little bit about this idea of regulation. You know, when I mentioned what we were doing today to some of my work colleagues who are under 30, their attitude is like, well, why would we regulate? Why do we regulate online? And in some ways, that beginning aspect of regulate or not regulate is still somewhat, you know, in the ether. And yet, in many ways, we've already begun to regulate and we're in an environment internationally where that's increasingly becoming the norm. I mean, last July, the government started a process including setting up a council for online safety, which I think you're a member of, Brian. And I think what would be really interesting in the beginning, before we go to Eugenia, Galvin and Maria and bring in, in the beginning, a little bit of their work and research, is just give me a sense of what's been happening in Ireland about this balancing act between our rights to use and access information, to use social media, to express our opinions okay. and views, and also now the very real concerns that are happening around that happening in an unregulated space. Sure. Um, uh, Helen, thanks very much, and thanks for the invitation to participate, and uh, thank you to everybody for uh, coming along. Uh, I suppose that uh, uh, given that we're all in this heightened state of anxiety, uh, it's good to talk through these issues, uh, and uh, you know, definitely uh, this is a really timely uh, debate. Um, yeah, uh, my, uh, uh, I suppose my focus and my footprint uh, within this whole general area of debate has uh, uh, a, a, a quite specific position around uh, child online safety, uh, which is one uh, area of uh, development uh, in terms of, you know, it's, uh, we're uh, experiencing or going through a number of different storms or crises 
uh, and uh, child online protection is one that has exercised policymakers, uh, researchers, and uh, uh, advocates within the field uh, for really quite a long time. Um, Coming, uh, I, I think most recently, it has been joined uh, uh, by a range of you know, separate crises around uh, information, uh, around uh, public interest uh, in terms of uh, uh, communications uh, and uh, regulatory uh, responses. So disinformation uh, and fake news clearly uh, has been uh, something since 2016 has broke, uh, broken on the world stage. Uh, in a very, very significant way and in terms of you know, its impact. Because ironically, Donald Trump keeps using the word fake news, which in some ways this is the, the pollution of, of yeah, the Twitter environment, is, is that we've, we've delivered disinformation and then we kind of have that yeah, backlash, yeah, which is yeah. smearing all of mainstream yeah. media as fake. And, and what I was going to say is that uh, this is, you know, there are a number of you know, separate debates going on. Uh, hate speech clearly is an uh, uh, area of, uh, of interest, uh, uh, threat to privacy, uh, and indeed in terms of um, uh, terrorism online. You know, these are all uh, quite uh, significant uh, separate areas uh, where there is something of a convergence uh, around uh, uh, Called, you know, this uh, response to an anxiety, uh, a wake-up call that there's a need for something to be done. Um, and what are we doing here, though? I mean, if, if the council was set up in July and we've just had the consultation now on online harmful content um, and safety mm. by the government, yeah. Give yeah. us a sense of what the Irish government is doing. Okay, so uh, last year was the publication of an action plan on online safety. And uh, while I say, you know, these uh, uh, themes are running in parallel, it's important not to conflate them uh, because uh, the solutions may, in fact, uh, be very, very different. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, uh, first up, uh, and uh, some of my own uh, activity within this area, I chaired uh, the Department of Edge uh, Communications Group on Internet Content Governance, uh, and uh, that was uh, succeeded, or indeed running at the same time as the Law Reform Commission's uh, report on harmful uh, communications. Uh, so there has been a significant amount of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, investigation and discussion about the kinds of options uh, available. Uh, there's been perhaps some public impatience uh, about uh, the lack of activity. Uh, we are now some 20 years on uh, from the first uh, regulatory moves uh, within the online space. Uh, it's about uh, it's the 20th anniversary of a significant landmark report on illegal and harmful uh, uh, uses of the internet, uh, uh, and that set out some of the initial templates. Uh, so now uh, we're uh, taking stock and uh, looking at things in different ways. The so the minister actually chairs say that council that you're on, the advisory council, and that's the, that's met a couple of times. And what you're looking at is an act that will follow, in a sense, what the minister, the, the, what Richard Bruton has looked at, is yeah. then that there's... We, we, we have in place a, a National Advisory uh, Council on Online Safety, and that uh, you know, uh, came from uh, some direct recommendations of our group on internet content governance, uh, and uh, then prefigured in terms of uh, the Law Reform Commission has looked towards the establishment of a Digital Safety Commissioner. The Action Plan on Online Safety does try to bring together a whole range of actions. Uh, on a cross-departmental basis because focus on the specific areas of online safety, 
there are uh, a number of different uh, issues at play there. So that uh, council uh, is established now as call it a multi-stakeholder forum, as somebody had to use the term. Uh, so you know, we have brought stakeholders together, uh, and uh, you know, that in itself is a very important uh, recognition. Uh, the Minister has separately brought forward uh, proposals, uh, and uh, we know, uh, of course, there have been a number of uh, uh, private members' bills and uh, proposals around what we should do. Which is where uh, this one that we're dealing with today, which has been called in that subtext, the revenge porn, or, you know, in against sexual harassment images being shared online. That's come from a private member's bill, which in a sense is now going to... But, was also, uh, but was also recommended by the Law Reform mm. Commission. So if you like, you know, this, uh, there's an overdue uh, review of our legal provisions in terms of an updating and an internet proofing in terms of you know, that uh, the available legislation was not in place uh, to recognise uh, uh, an offence that you know, clearly has yeah. uh, uh, caused significant harm uh, and uh, something that has been provided for elsewhere. So those kinds of measures are there. Uh, we have in place now, and this is, I suppose, you know, the, you know, con to contextualise you know, this discussion here, uh, now, uh, you know, following a consultation period, uh, that uh, a proposal for an online safety act uh, would uh, address uh, specific uh, nominated uh, uh, categories of online harm. Now, what those harms should be uh, and uh, the nature of the response to them uh, it will get us into some of the trickier detail yeah, of how, about how we go uh, around this. In terms of the feasibility around that, which will, and we can look at what's happening in other territories and, and come back to, say, the UK particularly because they've been moving rapidly ahead. I'm just going to bring in Eugenia now. So, Professor Eugenia Ciapera is at UCD. She's Head of School of Information and Communication Studies at UCD, but formerly was DCU, and I would say was an absolute uh, high flyer at DCU in many of the things that have been established at DCU, including the future of, of journalism and online, and also the Anti-Bullying Centre at DCU, which is ABC. So I think you're still a fellow at the Anti-Bullying Centre. But Eugenia now has been working specifically around hate speech and around the incidence of what, what Brian is talking about there when we talk about harmful content. I suppose your territory has been looking at some of the manifestations of that, what we see online. And I, I think, I mean, I, I've, I've read the, the paper and some of the earlier papers that, that you've been working on in looking at, particularly in Ireland as well, how we're seeing and experiencing what you would see as being hate speech in a social media context. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a sense about what are the, the, the kind of experiences that, that came up through your research about what we're seeing happening online? Yes, absolutely. Um, and that gives me the opportunity to kind of like bring this uh, question of harm again to the forefront because it's not, it doesn't happen randomly and it doesn't affect everyone equally. So when, uh, I, I, in my own research and generally when we speak about hate speech, there's certain communities that tend to get targeted much more than other communities and, and these are uh, people of colour and women who are disproportionately affected and then of course all these other uh, marginalised communities in terms of um, other demographic and other factors. But what we have seen in the context of Ireland has been uh, that what is happening in online media 
corresponds with what is happening in reality. So these are groups that are discriminated against socially in the social context, and then we see that the same thing is happening online. But of course, um, it's much easier to map it into uh, studies in online environments because you have the, the data that is there. So from this point of view, and I want to bring back the discussion from a tendency to kind of like exaggerate and, and see it as a, in terms of like a panic that is going on. What is happening in social media, I would ask, what is happening in our societies? Because clearly what is happening outside social media affects what is happening in social media. So the question is not so much uh, a question of, of individual harm, but it's a question of social inequalities that our societies have failed to address. And then we see this happening in social media as well. So unless we basically try to kind of like address racism, address misogyny, uh, address homophobia, uh, we're not going to be able to resolve these issues. So we have to think of what is happening on social media also in terms of what is happening elsewhere. Um, it doesn't come from nowhere. And, exactly. it, and in some ways, you, you immediately bring up that aspect about you know, how we handle it because you know, then if you close it all down and you stop any of that manifesting, it doesn't go away. But you can't do it. Uh, that's what we found in our research. It's like the, the Greek mythical monster of the Hydra. You cut one head and then two spring out. So uh, this we have seen, especially in terms of Facebook, because they have been constantly uh, updating their uh, policies in terms of, of content. And then we see that, uh, that they trigger immediate adaptations on behalf of people who have uh, a vested interest, let's say, or even random people who would be uh, posting these kinds of content. So it's very, very difficult to eradicate it using these kinds of um, uh, um, specific policies. You have to look at it from like a much more macro perspective of how are we going to deal with racism, how are we going to deal with inequality, and then use social media perhaps to uh, um, maybe address this vision. And maybe just to give us a little bit more of an example of what you, what you saw from your studies, yeah. you know, in terms of the case studies and when you unpacked it, yeah. and as you say, you, you use that image of the hydra and the many heads. Yeah. Can you give us some examples from what you were looking at in the Irish context about incidences or how they yeah. manifested then in, in com comments? Um, I think this will be immediately recognizable to anyone who's using social media in the context of Ireland. So we have uh, a certain, um, we use a certain term called the trigger event. And this, uh, there you can see also the role of mainstream media, not social media. So uh, mainstream media would refer to something such as maybe uh, welfare, the housing crisis, uh, the hospital waiting list, and then you immediately have a pile on, it's the immigrants, it's the foreigners, it's the uh, travelers, um, they're putting in the pressure on these systems. So also other trigger events could be anything that has to do with refugees, with Islam. Uh, they would immediately create uh, a series of uh, hateful posts addressing these people. Um, anything to do with single mothers, for example, would trigger a lot of misogynistic contents. Uh, but when you unpack it, where you're yeah. finding it's a small handful of people with multiple accounts targeting an issue or did you have a sense uh, of what was the story behind it? There is, uh, the, the, this is the kind of like distinction between that Facebook is looking to draw now between organized groups 
and disorganized or ambient racism so or misogyny for this matter so what you have is like there are certain people who uh, uh, operate certain accounts who would be involved in this in a kind of like a, an organized kind of capacity but a lot of it actually comes from everyday users who don't even recognize their, their content is problematic and if others call them out they would say oh it's PC gone mad or you know it's censorship my freedom of expression it's very very common experiences for everyone um, online this is why it's so difficult to address oh, and it comes back to Brian's involvement with, with the, the, the digital literacy yes. uh, network as well which we'll come back to because in some ways there often is that sense um, as, as we've talked about before that when you talk to people they'll often think that they have an almost parallel First Amendment because they've watched a lot of US uh, <laughs> procedural <laughs> films and TVs and they'll think that there is like a First Amendment right that we're all operating on but whether we like it or not, we're not. So I mean, we're going to just bring in Gavin there. So Gavin Sheridan is somebody who has been working in journalism and in technology and started as a blogger in 2002, way back then, when it was almost like a cosy community where people knew each other and uh, blogging really was that way in which ideas spread and I suppose by 2008 Twitter had taken off and most bloggers became uh, Twitter activists and that they talked on that. But Gavin went on to become a founding member of Storyful, Mark Little's um, digital news, innovative set set startup, now owned by uh, part of the Rupert Murdoch empire. But, um, but Gavin was, with his colleagues, very instrumental in using tools which in many ways have become much more common now in journalism, data mining and open source journalism. And in some ways also using freedom of information and using freedom of information as a journalistic tool. I mean, since then, I suppose Gavin is now ex story so but he runs his own business biz legal and when i asked him what biz legal is he said it creates cool tools for lawyers but they also sound like they could be cool tools for journalists as well but gavin one of the the beyond the many reasons it's fascinating to talk to gavin and um, gavin brings in a story which which really is, is very topical for us when i when i mention cambridge analytica and the impact on the electoral system because i mean gavin i think it's probably worth sharing what your involvement was, say, with last year's referendum with the Eighth Amendment and with the stories that you were flagging publicly about there be dragons there and those dangers, particularly with Facebook and advertisement and the manipulation of posts, but also, you know, things changed very radically as you began to get involved. Yeah, so I, I guess for the last couple of years, I do Twitter threads and they get me in trouble. It's usually what happens. Long Twitter, long, threads. Long Twitter threads, giving out about something or other. Um, but one of those Twitter threads that I did in, in 2017 um, was kind of analyzing that we knew that the, the, the abortion referendum was going to happen, just the date had not been named. And I just did a Twitter thread explaining that our legislative framework still did not take into consideration what had happened in the context of the 2016 US election. And that the government had done very little slash nothing to address the, the, the kind of lacuna that exists around how you can fund advertising uh, via social media without regulation. Um, and that resulted in a piece in the Irish Times that I wrote based on the thread. The Irish Times contacted me and said, could you put that Twitter thread into an article? And I said, grand. 
and I wrote that in the Irish Times, and I basically made the same argument in a, in a far more coherent way, I think. And I said, well, we need to start looking at this now. And that was now. about nine months. Yeah, so that was like September, September 2017. So I kind of said, look, if you look at our legislative framework now, we have the Standards of Public Office Commission, we have rules around political fund, political party funding, we have the Broadcast Authority of Ireland, we have the, uh, the Advertising Standards Authority, we have a whole, whole range of, of bodies. And when you're looking at whether, and really the key question you're asking is, how do you run free and fair elections or referenda in the modern era? And is it possible, if you don't start legislating for this kind of stuff, that you can have free and fair elections or referenda? Because of the things, the, the types of tactics that we've seen now in, a, in modern election campaigning, particularly in the United States. So when it came around to the, to the referendum, like, I mean, I was kind of saying we, we could, if we wanted, try and address some of these issues via emergency legislation, although that perhaps would have been counterproductive. Um, but at, at least as the, as the referendum date was announced, and then it, it came along in, in April and May last year, one of the things that I tried to highlight on Twitter, at, at least, was to say to people, look, you are seeing ads on your social media accounts now, and we do not know the origin of that ad. We do not know the origin of who paid for that ad. Where the money's we, coming from. We, we have, and, and we have no law that makes this uh, 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 you know, illegal or, or regulates in any way. Because we do have existing bans on television ads in certain contexts and radio and... It's quite regulated. It's quite regulated. Compared to, say, the US, yeah. we're an incredibly regulated except, environment. Except the internet. So I was saying, well, the obvious thing that any actor in this situation is going to do is to put a very heavy focus on online ads or online communities. And ultimately, that's what happened. So I kind of, in order to try and kind of illustrate the problems that are inherent with this, I took one particular Facebook page and I said, a simple question to ask here is, who's behind this page? That's it. And, and this isn't a paid ad going into Ireland. I want to know who's behind this page. But there's no laws that require them to declare who they are. And uh, during the course of a Sunday afternoon, because I was bored, I was just going through a real-time investigation trying to find out who was behind this page. Um, it turns out it was the no side of, of the campaign working with a digital uh, agency in, in Texas. Um, and that resulted in, in I, I think, one of the, the main reaction I got from that Twitter thread was from people going, I had no idea, A, that you could investigate this way, which was interesting in itself, I guess, because people don't necessarily know how Facebook works. But also that I didn't even know that, that this could happen. In other words, if anybody wanted right now, they could start advertising in this particular way on any platform, not just Facebook. And there's no law that, that regulates how that happens, which means that in a small country like Ireland, with only four million people, you could have vested interest from other jurisdictions who want to see a certain result in the referendum uh, having, a, having a disproportionate effect, potentially, on the outcome. And obviously, and, and I should have said, and this is mea culpa, since I, I, I am involved in digital media, is that if people want to tweet, please do, hashtag RIA social media. We just keep your phone on silent. But I mean, to, to roll forward, Gavin, what's really interesting about what happened is, is you flagged it, nothing really happened, and in a sense, we already all knew by that stage when we got to last April because uh, Cambridge Analytica had exploded and the whole fallout from that in terms of the discussion in Brexit referendum and the US was there. And in many ways then, during the referendum, you started unpacking that and things changed. I think what's really interesting is both Facebook and Twitter reacted directly to what or was Facebook coming out. YouTube. Facebook and YouTube. Yeah. Um, I, 
and well, or Google more broadly. And I think um, yeah. I'm not claiming credit for that, but I, I was trying to highlight the issue, and I think a lot of people uh, reacted to it, including perhaps Facebook, because I think you recognise the problem. And then Facebook took a decision to voluntarily say, okay, we're not going to allow any, any foreign funded ads in Ireland. And I, I was kind of making the argument at the time in the media that, well, that's fine, but that's a voluntary self-regulatory type situation. We really should have had laws in place already, and if we're going to do it, we're going to, we really should do, obviously it was too late by that point, but if we're going to do it now, we need to start having the debate right now about how are we going to do this. And, and going back to the original question is, how do you run free and fair referendums or elections in, in the context online, of, of an online campaign? And I guess just before I bring Marie in, because it's, like, it's, it's just really fascinating, you know, as we know, in a few weeks' time, we're all going to vote again on local elections and on the European elections. What's changed? In the Irish context, uh, not much has actually changed. The government has set up um, a working group, um, the electoral commission. So one of, one of the things that I pointed out at the time last year was that for, for its flaws, the UK electoral commission model was actually something that we, we had often promised doing but never actually properly implemented. In other words, an electoral commission that is on a permanent, more or less permanent footing. And that you could subsume elements like... Are just created every time we need it? Yeah, right, whereas what really you should have is a, a, a standing electoral commission that will be there for all local European referenda or whatever, and that that would act as the, the essentially the election regulator, a bit like the electoral commission model in the UK. So I think the government is going to go down that road. It's not going to be ready in time for the elections this month, but it, it, it certainly looks like they're going to go down this, this uh, path of perhaps an electoral commission model based on the UK model was slightly stronger. And obviously in the meantime, we, we've had the UK come out and say very clearly from the, the, the select committee in Parliament that their electoral process is not fit for purpose after the examination of what happened yeah, like in the Brexit referendum. In the Brexit referendum, you saw an awful lot of... I mean, you, you could imagine if... And this goes back to the core question again. How do you have free and fair referenda in a, in a, in a, in a capacity like this? One of the issues that came up in the Brexit referendum was coordinated overspending above limits in, uh, between elements in the, in the leave side, between BLEAVE and leave.eu. And it was, quite, it was relatively effective where you could essentially ship money over to another organisation and coordinate spending something else, and then those organisations get fined. Now, the Electoral Commission in, in the UK would argue, we don't have enough powers and we don't have enough ability to make people liable for these actions that essentially, you would, some could argue, made the election, uh, the election result unfair or breached the kind of covenant you have in the start of an election process that says this will be a free and fair referendum. But at the moment, when, when you look at it from an Irish perspective, you could take some of those lessons if you wanted, and I think there's an opportunity to, in a small country like Ireland, to actually make best-in-class legislation in the online capacity to have a, a model for how you would legislate in this area that other countries could replicate. We could lead. Yes, I think so. <laughs> so, we're kind of unpacking some of the complexities of this, but it just from Brian, because you've been looking at a lot of, of good codes of practice and also what other people are doing. And like, while Gavin quite rightly wants Ireland to lead on this, and that would be great. I mean, plastic bags, mm. smoking, we did it, we can do this. Is that what the UK has sort of been racing ahead, you know, and, and again, landing on a lot of different decisions around uh, online content and online regulation in a whole range of territories. But also you're looking at the Nordic countries and some of the other models across what are we seeing? You know, let's start with the UK. Ofcom, yeah. unlike here, Ofcom has 
uh, responsibility mm -hmm. over both broadcasting and online and has been central to some of these discussions. Our regulator in terms of the BAI mm -hmm. is broadcasting and we don't really have an online agency, right? Yeah. So yeah. what are we learning from the UK example? Well, I think there's much to, I suppose, observe and you know to assess and learn. I'm not sure. You know, I think we could learn the lessons of. Just to say that they aren't they had legislated. Yes. The legislation is two years ago. Yes. The Digital Economy Act. So July 15th, you know, a a first for. Uh, a jurisdiction yeah. uh, in terms of uh, setting uh, age-restricted uh, content yeah. uh, 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 online. And interestingly, the regulator is, in fact, uh, our, the good old film classification office. Uh, so there's a very interesting, I suppose, uh, trajectory being followed uh, in terms of uh, the UK approach, which has been well-flagged. And this is one example. And I think it is an experiment. You look and assess you know, how this is going. But uh, there have been many other uh, kinds of signals. Uh, David Cameron uh, famously introduced active choice uh, so that every uh, internet service provider must provide uh, filtering uh, uh, on the network to the home uh, and uh, subscribers must decide whether they should have uh, under 18 uh, access to adult content and so on. So these are going on and these are, uh, I'm, I'm not making comment uh, in terms of let's say the particular approach uh, but uh, you know, those are some of the ways in which uh, this is being mapped out. In more detail, in the white paper that the UK has published in terms of online harms, uh, so I think that uh, will certainly inform our debate. Uh, and that just came uh, out this month, or last yeah. month, April. Uh, and following on, you know, previously a green paper, so there's been a very active uh, uh, discussion uh, uh, from the UK around measures uh, uh, intended, ostensibly, uh, to make the UK the safest place for a child uh, online. Uh, That's anywhere. what you're saying. Uh, Are they going to have a regulator? Uh, 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 there is a proposal for a regulatory uh, function, uh, and where that uh, regulatory function would reside is, uh, is a question to, uh, to be decided. Okay, uh, that's the UK, uh, and I should say again in terms of you know, my uh, active involvement within this is also in looking at uh, or participating, contributing to European uh, policy discussion. Uh, the European Union has been a significant force in uh, a variety of fronts not least GDPR in terms of you know, establishing uh, regulatory frameworks uh, that have uh, purchased uh, right across uh, all of this. Uh, but uh, what was uh, the Safer Internet Program, which again dates back to the 19, uh, 1999, uh, and uh, uh, subsequently the Better Internet for Kids Program, which I'm involved in. Uh, so you know, those have taken different kinds of approaches. Codes of practice uh, have been a, a, a key instrument within this. And uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, what are the different kinds of uh, uh, instruments that can be made available. Uh, there is, uh, again, an interesting sort of, you know, success rate. Uh, some have been more successful than others, uh, but most recently in relation to disinformation is certainly one, and the code of practice in relation to hate speech and so on. These are code of practice for the platform. Yeah, uh, but they also they're uh, negotiated codes of practice, uh, uh, which you know, can involve you know, direct dialogue uh, with industry, and then in terms of uh, how they are implemented, how they are assessed, how they are evaluated, or whatnot. But it does bring back uh, just the issue that you raised in terms of you know, where this might come back in terms of backstop powers, as the phrase goes, and uh, who might operate those and who might have uh, those kinds of functions. 
um, uh, uh, also in the recent uh, consultation, in fact, you know, the, the one of the key functions of the recent consultation on online safety uh, was in terms of the extension of the uh, European audiovisual ABMSD as, uh, again, the principal European media policy instrument, uh, that we have progressed uh, beyond uh, the case where there are very distinct lines between television, uh, linear, non-linear, and online content, uh, so that we need to uh, extend that. So video sharing platforms, what's the difference between the content that you might watch uh, on demand uh, or on a, a terrestrial so, TV? So, one of the so you things have to have rules around this. So one of the things in the consultation was obviously also framing again, would the BAI become a super regulator and take on board the content aspects of those kind of services, streaming online services, and then there would be um, a separate agency. I mean, part of, of the aspect around this, I suppose, as somebody who's come up from print to broadcasting into online is often to wonder why we keep creating all these separate rooms for content, mm -hmm. because content is flowing from one room into the other. And it does seem to me often quite bizarre that we'll have regulators for broadcasting which are separate to online when in some ways all of these things are intermixed. But mm. th these, were, these were questions that we've been asked in the consultation. One of the things, um, I'm just going to bring in uh, Gavin on this as well, is this idea of the publisher. Because I, I think one of the things that again we grapple with when we talk about that aspect of how we regulate online content in, this, in our societies is, do we recognize the social media players? Do we recognize Facebook as a publisher? I mean, Gavin, what do you think? God, that's a big question. Yeah, um, I'm good to the big ones. The answers <laughs> are yours. Um, I read an article during the week about um, Facebook's internal reaction to the Christchurch video, uh, the live streaming of the uh, attack. And on I, YouTube. On, and on, 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 on Facebook on, on and YouTube. YouTube. Yeah. So, um, what was interesting was it was kind of an insider account of the Facebook reaction internally. Um, they have a, a global team with one of the main, actually a, a former lawyer based in Texas, who was interviewed and, and he talked about uh, the reaction to it. I came away reading that story uh, not very impressed with what they were doing, to be honest, because um, when we were building Storyful, we were building a 24-7 newsroom to identify that type of content as fast as possible on any social platform, and then to, autom and then to contextualize it as quickly as possible on behalf of other newsrooms, because <coughs> that was our business model. I mean, um, your thing was also to prove whether it was real or not, as, yeah, a, to, as a service to, to, to other players yeah. like TV stations, yeah. to so do that back. Exactly, yeah, to, to debunk or to verify, contextualize, um, breaking news content on any platform in any language. And I guess I came away from reading that piece going, God, Facebook, we're slow. Um, if I had the resources of Facebook uh, from a technical perspective, including the data that they have internally, and including the human resources uh, that are available, I think things could have gone a lot better. So when I'm thinking about, when I was reading the piece, though, to answer your question, I was, I was reading quotes from lawyers and uh, internal policy uh, types, and I was going, well, they're actually behaving as editors. They just haven't named them as such. Just haven't admitted so, it. <laughs> so the guy in Texas who's quoted in the piece, I'm kind of going, well, he sh this is a five alarm fire breaking news event, as we would call it in Storyful, and he, he's literally, he should be ringing his team 
if, if they're in another time zone, like in New Zealand time zone, wherever they're in Singapore or wherever. And your job is to, is to get everybody awake that we're going to focus on this. But his name, is, his name doesn't include the word editor. But essentially, it's, it's crossing a line between we, we don't allow this type of content on our platform, then there's a reaction to how we're going to do it. So is Facebook a publisher? Absolutely. Does it have editor-like roles inside its organization? It seems to. Does it still say it's not really a publisher? Yes, but it kind of is. <laughs> Eugenia, I mean, one of the things that, that's really interesting to come into now is one of the things that, that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook were saying yesterday when he said that the future is private was that what they're also going to do, because I was flagging equally that Facebook is also WhatsApp and Instagram, but like this messenger and encrypted zone that's in WhatsApp, which probably most of us are using and, and using and it's a hugely positive part of our lives. It's kind of significant things that are happening in both, you know, when we look at what's happening with online, both within algorithm economies, decisions which are being based on the algorithms, and also some, some of the stories that we're seeing out of that shift into where Facebook is now. I mean, one of the things I think I saw in your work was also some of these, what, what Maria talks about, the human rights challenges, but the human rights challenges of an algorithm-based economy. I mean, whether it's Airbnb or Uber or any environment where you can start to, and this has been often very contextualized in public debate now, when you can start to screen out certain people, certain races, certain ethnicities, and obviously Facebook had that, that challenge as well in terms of its advertisement, which allowed you to do that quite specifically by using the amount of data to target specific genders, races, ages, and you, you can see huge social impacts there. I mean, what, what's your take on that? Because your work shows a lot of evidence mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, and this is again where we have to link what is happening in social media platforms with wider societal changes, and in particular, the shift towards data-driven decisions. So more and more now, decisions are taking place on the basis of collecting data and somehow analyzing it uh, so that it can provide um, decisions that are meant to be more objective, only in fact they're not, uh, because the, the data you collect in the first place is biased. But what we have seen is like the removal of the human factor there because it's meant to be like, you know, more prone to errors or prejudices and replaced by um, uh, algorithms, but algorithms are themselves equally problematic, if not more. So now, for example, in the context of the UK, we have seen that welfare decisions are based on the basis of, uh, are, are, are taken on the basis of um, algorithms that flag out high risk to low risk areas, but these are, of course, mapped onto existing inequalities. So uh, uh, someone who's unemployed, for example, are meant to be, are, are uh, seen as being high risk. So therefore, decisions then are taken on this basis. Uh, it's the same in the U United States, for example, there was a, uh, an investigative report by ProPublica that showed that um, the risk to offend, for example, is based on uh, existing data about who offends in the United States. So it's definitely prejudiced against people of color and so on and so forth. You have all these decisions taken on the basis of data saying, oh, now we're not going to be prejudiced anymore because it's all data, it's all technology, it's all objective, only in fact it isn't. It's equally, or if not more, uh, biased and, and problematic. You mentioned something about the, the um, artificial intelligence in cars as well. Yes, where, because correct. obviously everything, every algorithm is also a product yes. 
of human intelligence. Absolutely. And this is where, again, we see the question of inequality. Who is producing these uh, algorithms? Who is working for these companies? And I can tell you, it's not people of color and it's not women. So you, you get a system that reproduces itself, as it were, and only the, the self that it reproduces is, a, is a based on inequalities. So in terms of this, um, the self-driving car, for example, the, the, the engineers there used algorithms that were based on uh, white skin. So this car is much more likely to run you over if your skin is darker. So this is how, how big the problem is. Um, I, I saw other reports of algorithms for recognition of skin cancer and other types of, uh, of uh, uh, skin-related diseases that is based on Google Images. Google Images contains only 5% of images of non-white people. So you see where the problem is now. On that, yeah. on that point, uh, I had this weird experience last week where um, I... <laughs> I'm glad we're at the point where we started. <laughs> I can tell that it goes. My dad was on, on his iPad. Uh, uh, my mum and dad spent a lot of time on their iPads. And I, I hear this, I hear this uh, they're both in their mid-60s. I hear this familiar voice from the iPad. And I'm like, what are you watching? And I was like, I don't know, just this guy. I said, is that Paul Joseph Watson from Infowars? And he said, he said, I don't know who Paul Watson is. It just came up in my recommended videos. And I said, what were you, what were you watching before that? He said, I was watching history videos about the Nazis. <laughs> and, I said, but so, and I said, but do you know who this account is? He said, I don't even know who uploaded it. He just sees a video. Yeah. Right? So he had no context. He didn't even know what he had tapped on. Yeah. In order, from the recommended videos here. on this side, yeah. he had no context in the UI to understand what he was doing. He didn't know who this person was. And I said, do you know who that person is? I know who that person is. I know, and this, this uh, conspiracy theorist that, uh, was talking about... Uh, Maybe you should tell everybody in case oh, sorry, you it's, haven't it's, had the joy of that video it's, on it's jumping one of It's one of Alex Jones's fellow travellers in the conspiracy theory world of uh, overlapping with the far right. So I, I said to my... And I, I was good to interrogate my father. I said, well, do you understand what's happening here? Do you understand that YouTube is based on the concept of accounts that upload videos? Do you know what account this is? And he said, no. And I said, can you show me on the screen right now, on your iPad, who uploaded this video? No. Do you see those videos on the right-hand side, those recommend, recommended videos based on this video? He said, yeah. I said, do you know where, how those were generated? He said, no. Now, I have to look over the shoulder of my mother when she's on YouTube, and I'm going, what is she watching? Now, this isn't to say my parents aren't, my, but my parents are smart people, but they didn't, they, they didn't come up in a world where, that I came up with, which is, I was, I've been using the internet for 25 years. Yeah. So I'm kind of going, my, my mum and dad are not equipped for this, and my dad doesn't even know how to interrogate the YouTube video. Yeah. Now, he could watch it and go, God, this guy's talking on the side. But does that happen for everybody? Because the thing we're talking about is that like, we're really all turned into algorithmic products online when we use social media. So every, every time we do something, we're, we're being mapped, we're giving data, and we, we, we create this incredible level of profiling around it. I mean. I was saying that, that the, the Guardian in Focus has a podcast where Astana, the presenter, does this, which everybody says, which is where she's talking and setting up an interview with the, with the tech journalist, but is she saying, like, I'm now convinced that Facebook are listening to my iPhone because every time I have a conversation, the ad pops up. He, of course, tells her that they're not, really, but there is that sense, as he says, because we're giving so much information and our friends and our networks, there is such a curve of information being dumped by all of us in, in our interactions online every day, 
that we, most of us, even pretty clued-in people, are not quite aware about what we've handed over to the tech company. Gavin, what's your think? I mean, because in some ways, the, the part of the premise about the political article, and, it, and indeed, maybe the dozens of articles that have been spawned globally in response to it since, is, is the track record on this, and that in some ways, you know, what we're clearly being accused of is having a too cozy relationship with players upon whom we are economically dependent and therefore may not have the ability to have some of the discussions mm. which need to be had. Yeah, it reminded me of an article that was in the New York Times in uh, uh, 12 years ago that called uh, Ireland the Wild West of European Finance, um, which was before the crash. Um, and and the, the, the article pointed to a lack of regulation happening in, in the finance uh, area in Ireland. When I was reading this piece in, in Political, I was kind of going through the same process because I guess to some extent Ireland has a track record in relatively lightweight regulation in most areas, I would argue. Um, and uh, a kind of a, well, we'll shake hands and we'll sort it out and we'll work on, on codes as opposed to enforcement or laws and we'll come up with some solution and we'll work together with industry rather than, so more, more carrot and less stick. Um, I, I think that perhaps, I, I, I agree completely that we're very early on in this, this is, this is a new law, this is a new area. You're going to see more litigation in the courts. You're going to see uh, this evolve over time. So, in in, in, a way, in a lot of ways, I agree. With Marie, it's, it's the, the, the it's, it's very it's very early doors. But but you're more cynical. <laughs> I tend to be more cynical because I'm a journalist. But that's the, that's where it comes from. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm going to do do a little wrap up with you all before. I mean, I'll chat to people in the floor as well. But there is a sense which I think we'd all agree is while unpacking some of the challenges that are here and the fact that there, 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 there aren't very many easy solutions. In order to, to look at the positive here, what, what I'd like us maybe to sort of consider about what we'd like to see happen or ways in which we could, we, we could consider which would be useful over the next 12 months, given that it's really only 12 months since Cambridge Analytica, GDPR and all of those things. Um, where we are, I think, as Maria said to me when I first talked to her, and it was a great answer, is not where we should be if we were to start this discussion. We're behind, perhaps, in having a very deep uh, public debate about this. I mean, as Gavin was talking about with his folks, which is typical with most of us, is that, that the level of, of digital awareness or real sense of understanding of what's going on is probably low. Um, but also, in a sense, that level of investment in research and development Brian, from your perspective, because you are in the midst of all these, these high-end committees and councils and meetings with policymakers, and so you have access to a, to a lot of thinkers as well. Have you a sense what you'd like to see happen <coughs> over the next year in terms of this territory? Because you've been very involved in literacy as being one of the tools yeah. to actually help. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think we shouldn't be overly hard on ourselves, uh, and I, I, I put this on a sort of European and then an international uh, uh, stage. Uh, uh, I recently completed, I did a mapping of uh, uh, European policies around this area and uh, we're doing really quite well. What's really concerning is... That's like, a you know, <laughs> Well, if, if, if there are other questions of concern there because uh, you know, the European Union uh, you know, is 
uh, a really important actor in some key areas. Uh, I, I am concerned about, uh, let, let's say, the degree of priority it has within the Digital Europe program. Uh, we have uh, important uh, sort of key priorities you know, for the whole European Union in the coming years, uh, or the uh, positions that the Parliament is taking. Uh, you know, there's, to get serious with this, uh, it is going to need very concerted and very coordinated action uh, in terms of doing the right uh, kinds of things. And uh, you know, I, uh, I believe in smart and pragmatic regulation, uh, if that's a, 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 a good combination. Uh, but it is about uh, identifying what the issues are, where the degree of investment in time, in effort, and resources uh, is needed uh, to move us on. Uh, so with, there has been discussion certainly around uh, the media space uh, in terms of, you know, uh, there's been a knee-jerk reaction uh, in questions around safety that there is a rush to regulation uh, that I think we should all be extremely cautious of uh, because uh, these are not, uh, these are very blunt instruments to try and solve, you know, complex uh, uh, problems. Uh, but I, I do hope that uh, post-European uh, elections uh, and into the next mandate of the European Commission uh, that we do do actually take up uh, some of our key uh, public uh, priorities uh, around uh, what kind of online space we're trying to create. Uh, and that means uh, a mix of a number of different kinds of solutions. Uh, and look to the, the quality of our uh, regulatory frameworks. And some of them have worked very well. Uh, and uh, you know, I think Ireland is uh, you know, a player, but within, we're a piece of a much larger uh, jigsaw. Um, I would be broadly optimistic uh, that uh, you know, if these debates uh, can continue on uh, and get the degree of, uh, uh, of uh, prioritization and uh, resourcing, we have high ambitions to be an economic player, um, but that requires a good social base uh, underpinning yeah. it. We can't quite have the economy without sorting out all the social questions and indeed the regulatory ones that come with, with that economy, it would seem, Eugenia, what's your take? What, what, beyond your, the research you're doing, I'm kind of interested in what you might have as being things that you would like to see happening in this space, both within research, in thinking, in policy, because then again, again, you're cooperating and liaising with a lot of European researchers as well. So in, in looking at how we, we go forward over the next 12 months, uh, well, one thing that I would like to see as an academic is access, fair access to data from social media corporations so that we can perform proper research as academics. And at this point in time, we don't have this kind of access. Because Facebook just announced uh, through its, its third party agency yeah. a huge layer of academic funded research relating to its role in the elections in all the aforementioned countries. And it struck me again as being an odd way to do it because, yeah. you know, while that said it was, it was set up through an independent group and, and they won't have any role in, in the research, again, it seemed too connected to them for my liking. Yeah, I, I share your, your concerns there. Uh, also, the whole thing is so much kind of like US-based that it really does uh, raise questions. Um, they, so they uh, developed this really very convoluted way of offering data to academics, but they do it so that uh, there is like some kind of like peer review process, but the peer review is based on US Ivy League universities that have a very specific way of viewing social science 
um, and there, there have been already questions raised by, uh, by other academics outside the United States. And also we've seen the kinds of projects they funded and I mean they are fair enough, they're interesting projects but really nothing that is not unexpected, nothing that might be extremely critical for example of the role of social media corporations. So I wonder the, the, how um, open this kind of process is. But to bring it back to the, the immediate concern that I have as an academic is that we have to produce knowledge that is independent and, and we don't have access to the materials in order to produce this kind of knowledge. So independent access but, but also independent funding. Yes, exactly. Uh, Gavin, obviously your interest in this has been on the electoral side. Have you, have you a sense about what you'd like to see? Well, just to, just, just to talk for a second about, about that issue, I did, haven't watched yet uh, Mark Zuckerberg's F8 uh, keynote from yesterday, but the, my takeaway from it was is, is what you said at the start, which is a pivot to privacy. Pivot to privacy. The question then is, is that in, over the next two or three years, is there going to be any data for researchers to access? Because, because if, the, if the data is encrypted, and if it's, if it's encrypted by default and it's closed groups that are on Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram servers or YouTube or Google or whoever, um, a question that's going to arise is the inability of anybody to know what the hell is going on. Because one of the impacts of, of, of what he was outlining, I thought, was that you know, the, the, the challenges for democracy were, were even greater because if the shift is to encrypted uh, groups like uh, what the, the integration of Messenger and WhatsApp, that you, we've seen that impact in Brazil, but we would therefore then have um, a completely uh, under the radar operation of information yeah. and, sharing. And, and I, don't have a, I don't have an answer for that because no. I use encrypted messaging myself. I use Signal Messenger. Exactly. And, and I, I think um, when it comes, uh, the questions you would arise from Facebook's pivot is okay, how, are they, how, how, how did they plan to monetize this process? Where will all the data live? How much metadata will exist? what will be going on inside those encrypted communities that nobody is aware of, including researchers and including Facebook themselves. So she, you and, talked and to, notably, sorry, yeah. And notably then that they no longer have responsibility for what they don't know. Because you talked about the, the presentation in the UK Parliament the other day where, can you mention that? Yeah, sure. Like the, it kind of rips off what my dad saw on YouTube last week, which is that the chair of the, the Home Affairs Committee asked the, the, the head of uh, policy for YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter for EMEA, and he, she was essentially saying, I have an iPad in front of me right now. I searched for something, and the third recommendation after I watched one video and then another was far-right in nature, or uh, far-right extremism, or white supremacy. How can you explain this? And at the end, and they didn't have a real explanation, except to say that, well, the algorithms, just the way the algorithms work, was more or less response from the YouTube policy guy. And then she said at the end, she said, well, we've had you guys coming in here every year for years saying that you're working on it or that you're doing something. But she said, I have my iPad out right now and I still have these problems. So what, are you really doing anything or are you just telling us? Because, I mean, I think she was also talking about that, you know, closed WhatsApp groups actually with often maybe as many as 300 people in it. Um, having death threats and oh, very yeah, yeah. extended she, Yeah, she mentioned, she mentioned a, a, a Facebook, a closed Facebook group with 30,000 members group. that she had, had, had uh, included death threats against her herself. 
And, she's, and, and essentially the response from, from the Facebook representative was, well, we have automated systems that monitor the kind of words that are being used in those closed groups, and we will act now in response to what you've just said, which is, again, a piecemeal response that traditionally happens during the course of those kind of committee hearings. And where it comes back to, which is what we're talking about, is that this has to move outside of the knee-jerk response of, of uh, commercial operations when, when a problem arises.